At the end of episode three, Nat Fraser was put behind bars for trying to strangle Arlene five weeks before she vanished. Now, once he was put in a cell, detectives could, if they wanted, find out everything Nat said to anyone, be it another prisoner or even a warder. Would he give away the tiniest bit of information that would set them on a path to finding out what had happened to his missing wife, Arlene? I'm Dale Haslam. I'm an investigative journalist at the Press and Journal. And in this episode, I'm going to examine how police turn to a lip reader in one last push to solve Scotland's largest ever missing persons case. I'm also going to look at how one key conversation in prison gave detectives a major breakthrough, how the fate of Nat Fraser would end up in the hands of a jury and how a staggering new development turned everything on its head. You're listening to Vanished, the Arlene Fraser murder. A true crime podcast from the Press and Journal and Impact Podcasts. Episode 4, The Conversation. Nat's first day behind bars was in March 2000. While the sentence was 18 months, he got out on licence in November 2000 due to good behaviour. But his liberty didn't last long, and it was all down to Nat's deceptive side. Because anyone who claims they do not have the funds to hire a lawyer can get those funds from the state through legal aid. And while he was fighting the assault charge, Nat claimed to have no money for lawyers. But this was a lie. And this lie would cost Nat dearly. When police found out, they prosecuted Nat for legal aid fraud. And in April 2001, he found himself in jail yet again for another year. During Nat's two spells at Porterfield Prison in Inverness, police threw everything they had at trying to uncover the mystery of Arlene's whereabouts. They had employed a criminal psychologist to study Nat's body language and even a psychic medium. But both efforts led detectives nowhere. Police, though, had another strategy they wanted to try. They wanted to use a lip reader. And their efforts revolved around two men, the prisoner, Nat Fraser, and another man named Glenn Lucas. So who was Glenn Lucas? And why was he so important? To explain this, we need to go back to an earlier time in Nat's life. It was in Elgin where, in his 20s, Nat Fraser got his big break. Keen to launch his own business empire and become a self-made man, Nat learned how to run a fruit and veg delivery firm, and it was all thanks to Glenn Lucas. You could say that Lucas was something of a life coach to Nat. Lucas had moved away from Elgin to Lincolnshire in England, and he already had his own successful fruit and veg firm south of the border. Nat saw how independent Glenn Lucas was, and he wanted that for himself. So when Lucas found out that his prodigy, Nat, was locked up in Scotland, he visited Nat on multiple occasions. Retired Superintendent Alan Smith, who worked on the Arlene Fraser case, met Lucas many times. He was horrible. He was a different animal altogether. He was one cocky, arrogant, 
so-and-so, you know. He knew everything. He was bullshit. Just typical alpha male. Big, big guy. Brash. In your face. Difficult to deal with. Typical fruit and veg. Lord of the manor. Yeah. Been there, done it all. You lot know nothing. Your country bumpkin detectives. He positioned himself as a defender of the lost cause or the defender of that uh -huh. cause. He... His view was Grampian police were a bunch of jokers. They they uh, latched on to this as a murder investigation when it was nothing other than a missing person investigation, and they'd set out on a journey to frame his best mate Matt. He would do everything in his power to help and clear Nat's name, and that was his life ambition. Now was to 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 get justice for Nat. But as the prison visits between Lucas and Nat went on, things took a more sinister turn. Because one day, police began to suspect Lucas might not just be helping Nat. They suspected Lucas might be involved in Arlene's disappearance. So police decided to secretly tape the conversations between Nat and Lucas inside the prison. Alan Smith was in possession of these taped conversations between Nat and Glenn Lucas. I'm in an office in Aberdeen looking at this tape, it's both frustrating and intriguing because you can tell just by the body language that they're not talking about football. It's clear they were having an intense conversation. Police were desperate to know what Lucas and Fraser were talking about. But there was a major problem. There was no sound on the video as it was being filmed from too far away. And so, police turned to a lip reader. You might think a lip reader sounds a bit left field, even unconventional, or perhaps high risk. How would the courts react to such an operation? Alan Smith explained that police decided to pursue this line of inquiry because a colleague of his had someone in mind. One of the guys in the special branch, he said, there is a lip reader that we use to um, interpret a conversation that took place in a park in Ireland between a terrorist and a bomb maker or something ultimately led to the recovery of, of bone-making equipment. And that woman was Jessica Reese, Profoundly deaf from childhood, Reese was renowned as Britain's foremost lip-reader in criminal cases. She had been using her lip-reading skills to help prosecutors in England put away bad guys since 1998. And so, Alan Smith made the 1,000-mile round trip from Aberdeen to Cambridge to meet her hoping that she could help their murder investigation. Reese agreed to be paid to look at the tapes of Lucas and Nat talking. Sat in her office, Reese opened up the Grampian police package containing a VHS tape. She carefully took the tape from its holder and loaded it into a video recorder, the kind every household would have had back in the early 2000s before digital TV fully took over the airwaves. Reese pressed play and saw before her two men sat across from each other, either side of a perspex screen. After watching the men's conversation several times, Reese took out a pen and began to transcribe the conversation. And it went something like this. And just to warn you, what follows contains graphic details and there is some swearing. According to Reese, Nat told Lucas, and I quote, Her arms are off. I pulled her teeth out. 
They can't find her. It's impossible, isn't it? I'll get away with it. It's all right. There's no evidence. It's all down the plug hole. So the police don't know shit. So fuck the lot of them. For detectives, who had been working night and day on this case for three years, this was dynamite. And there was more. The lip reader also picked up a reference to a person that Nat called Hecky. Police knew right away who this was. It was Hector Dick. So now, in 2002, four years after Arlene vanished, there was a huge development. Here, you have an independent expert witness stating that Nat Fraser and Glenn Lucas had spoken candidly about Arlene's murder. And this expert witness also made references to Nat's friend, Hector Dick. And remember, police already had their eye on Hector as he had bought a Ford Fiesta the night before Arlene went missing. And police suspected it was possible that that Ford Fiesta was somehow used in the crime. As is a standard practice, police added the evidence to their file and submitted it to the Crown Office. And it was then up to prosecutors to decide if there was enough evidence within that file to bring a prosecution against individuals. Their opinion? After sifting through the file, there was a clear course of action that they wanted to take. The Crown prosecuted. They charged three men. Nat Fraser, Hector Dick, and Glenn Lucas were all charged with the murder of Arlene Fraser. There was another important factor at play here around that time. In previous episodes, we heard that this was a case that tore the community of Elgin apart. Some people deeply sympathised with Arlene's family, but others sided with Nat. They simply couldn't understand how the smiling family man who ran his own business could abduct and kill his own wife, the mother of his children. But when the lip reader's gruesome evidence emerged, that all changed. Alan Smith described the lip reader's account of Nat's words as the stuff of nightmares, and the people of Elgin didn't like it one bit. In the early days, weeks, months even, you know, his family of followers and believers were all for him, you know? But as time went on, yeah. they must have been in their own kitchens, in their own houses. This is bloody strange, you know? She hasn't, she's missed birthdays, she's missed Christmas. She's, yeah. This doesn't, this doesn't square up here. People began to question their own judgment here, their own allegiance to that. Arlene's close friend, Michelle Scott, agrees. Yeah, probably would have turned some people in the community, but them that still support him and everything and don't Just, think that he would have done anything. I think it's fair to say that quite a lot of people believed him. They did believe him. Police officers who'd known him for years said, oh, I don't think Nat would do that. I don't yeah. th and then he came to me later on, further on in the trial, and he says, he's, he's definitely done it. Another of Arlene's close friends, Marion Taylor, had the same experience of a police officer springing to Nat's defence. I mean, his, his exact words was, 
Oh, no, not naughty, not naughty. Not even do anything. No, not naughty. And then later on, he goes, oh, boy, have I got an apology to make you? Yeah. I was so wrong there. After the Crown announced they had charged the three men with murder, another few months went by before the next big development. In January 2003, the three men arrived in the dock at Edinburgh High Court. It was time for the trial. I've covered court cases for many years and let me tell you, they are the bane of any reporter's existence. Don't get me wrong, reporting on prosecutions is vital for media organisations like ours, but it often tries the patience of journalists. That's because the only predictable thing about court is that it's completely unpredictable. And the Arlene Fraser murder case was no different. Because on day one, everyone was set to go. And then everything changed. Those gathered in the public gallery were expecting to see three people in the dock. Nat Fraser, Glenn Lucas and Hector Dick. But there was only one. In a strategic move by the Crown Office, all charges were suddenly dropped against Hector Dick and Glenn Lucas. And that left just one man standing trial, Arlene's husband, Nat Fraser. To some, the move at the time looked perplexing. Alan Smith explains why the Crown took that decision. And this move was very helpful to prosecutors. It meant that they could now question Hector Dick and use what he told them against Nat. This is known as turning Queen's evidence, where a suspect goes against a co-accused. It's a high-risk strategy for prosecutors, as there is a chance the witness's evidence might blow the whole case. Alan Smith explained why Hector suddenly went from a man in the frame to a witness eager to provide information to the Crown that could be used to prosecute his friend, Nat Fraser. He knew he was up to his neck in something. You could argue that, which, would Hector have lost any sleep over Arlene Bidet, the equation? No, probably not, you know. I remember Hector, when he was locked up, he asked to speak to me, but it was, it was like, either very early in the morning or late at night and we thought he was going to to spill the beans you know it was like he was ready to tell us something but i remember him saying to me you know he says there's only so far i can take you here i can take you some of the way but not all of the way in other words what he was inferring was i had a role to play i did what i had to do but i don't know the bigger picture and what hector dick told the jury did not what good for Nat. Hector Dick brought up the fact that 
shortly before Arlene went missing, Nat was talking about no-body convictions. As the name suggests, these are cases in which criminals are convicted when police never find a body. And Nat remarked to Hector Dick that there were few of these cases. According to Hector Dick, Nat said, and I quote, there are 10,000 people a year who go missing and none of them ever get found. Hector told the jury he knew Nat had ill will towards Arlene. And so he took the reference to missing people in that context. Things became more sinister still because Hector claimed that this wasn't just idle chit chat from Nat. Hector said that Nat also used books and computers to research the topic of nobody convictions. At the time, what Hector Dick said was very powerful. But was it enough to convince the jury of seven men and seven women that Nat Fraser orchestrated the murder of Arlene, even if Nat didn't physically snatch her from the house himself? So let's look again and remind you of the chain of events on the day Arlene went missing, during that all-important 50-minute window between when Arlene was last heard of and when her friend arrived at the house to find her missing. And let's look at why the Crown was convinced Nat was behind everything. It's an early morning on Smith Street in Elgin. As police would have it, Nat Fraser has overseen the purchase of a beige Ford Fiesta. He gets an unknown accomplice to drive this car to Smith Street in Elgin and to knock on Arlene's door. The accomplice leads Arlene into a car for a test drive and drives her to a pre-arranged rendezvous point where she is held. Then someone, whether it be Nat Fraser or someone else, kills Arlene and buries her body. But by far the most crucial point for prosecutors was that all this happened on the command of nobody else except Nat Fraser. But what motive did Nat have? Why would someone be so heartless as to arrange for his wife to be murdered? Nat's life is around control. Control of the house, control of the kids, control of Arling, control of the money and the finances. And all of that overnight when he was bailed was blown out of the water. And so here he is now staying with a friend uh, in a bedroom in Lambride and, and all his mind must have been this how his image locally had been blown apart. You could see his discomfort, you know. He wanted things to be normalised and he decided the way to normalise this was to get rid of Arlene. So if I can get Arlene, if I can remove Arlene out of the equation, things will get back to normal for me and the kids and yeah. a lot of money, everything will be fine. She was a problem that he needed to get rid of. You know, that it was like, it was well, like winning the jackpot. Ching, ching, ching. If he could get rid of Arlene, in his mind, four or five significant issues in his life would be sorted overnight if she was out of the equation. So the motive was overwhelming. If you ask the question, not only who had most to gain by Arlene's disappearance, but who had anything to gain yeah. from Arlene's disappearance, there was only one person. 
Of course, Nat was his usual self when he took to the stand to defend himself. He painted himself as a hard-working husband in a marriage that was facing challenges, but that he was trying to mend the relationship. The key question, however, was, would the jury buy his story? As the jury reached its verdict, dozens of thoughts were rushing through the mind of Alan Smith. You see, every detective I've ever met sees trials in exactly the same way. No matter how great a job they did gathering evidence, and no matter how well prosecutors have put the case to the jury, detectives always worry. Because they know that the onus is not on the defence to provide innocence. It is for the prosecution to prove guilt, to be certain. Just one oversight could blow the whole thing. Years of hard work for justice. Because the veil, the veil goes to let you know that that's the jury yeah. ready to come back. It was almost unbearable. It's palpable, it's isn't it? Yeah. I was sat with the family when the verdict was announced, and I can tell you, you just don't know how it was going to go. And then, the foreman stands up, and, prompted by the judge, he reads from his sheet. He says, we find the accused guilty. I'll tell you what the reaction was. I just got thrown out of the court. It was such a relief, the overwhelming. And, and you know, I was politely told, shh, quiet down. Lord Mackay, the judge in the trial, jailed Nat for 25 years. In his sentencing remarks, he said something that many people were thinking, that Nat would somehow have to explain his crime to his two children, Arlene's children. With the court case over, Arlene's family got some sort of closure and they decided to hold a memorial service here at South Church in Elgin. It took place on Easter Monday in 2003, five years on from when Arlene vanished. The scenes from that day were deeply moving. It was, after all, the church where Arlene had experienced one of the happiest days of her life, her wedding day. At the memorial, Arlene's loved ones held each other in grief and solidarity as they came together to celebrate Arlene's life. Then, three years later, in 2006, everything changed. Arlene's family were dealt a massive blow. The man who was jailed for Arlene's murder was suddenly released from jail. Nat Fraser was a free man. Next time on Vanished. I just thought, oh my God, he's back in Elgin. You know, it would have been very easy for the Crown to say, you know what, this is in the too hard category here, you know. Um, we, we gave it a fair chance. That in itself suggested something malevolent was at hand. Marion's not Fraser's here. He's absolutely staring at you, smiling away, and then he turned around in the same breath and says to Michelle, where's your pal tonight, Ben? And she went, what pal? And he goes, Arlene.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Vanished, the Arlene Fraser murder. Vanished is a production from the Press and Journal and Impact Podcasts. You can listen to the whole series on all major podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and follow our podcast page so you never miss a new episode. And why not check out Hunting Mr. X, a true crime podcast. This podcast was hosted and reported by me, Dale Haslam. It was produced by Marvin McIntyre and Brendan Duggan. Assistant producer is Megan Avonio. Thank you.